on two times. It's been all right with me. I got bad news for y'all, though. You know, when we started this little thing here, this little video, I told you by, by the 26th of June, I would be having rhythm. Whatever God said when I was in the rhythm line, I didn't understand correctly because I did not get in the right line. But I was trying to clap with my wife down there during that first song. And she, I mean, she, she can, she's got that cheerleader clap. She can pop it. You know, and it's like, pow, you know. And I'm going, I guess I'm trying to tell you it ain't going to happen. Don't count on rhythm out of the pastor by the time June 26 rolls along because it's going to take a lot longer than that. But I am certain when I get to heaven, I'm going to have the rhythm. Have you been blessed already? I'm telling you what. Let me tell you what I said. There is this message. I told Judy I'm just not sure how it's all going to come together. It's one of those ones I've got to lay a pretty good foundation before we start. And once we get started, that part's going to be a little bit shorter. So it seems like a little longer introduction. It's okay. It's intended that way. But, but it's, it's all about what you saw today. And when I, when I saw those, those kindergartners up here, the new first graders coming up, and I realized that moms and dads had made a conscious decision to get up and bring them to Sunday school on Sunday morning to do something that I'm not sure. No, I'm pretty sure I could not do. I don't think I could sing that song about the books in the Bible and get it right. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure. And moms and dads made that decision to get those kids up, and they got Jesus poured into them. And then there are volunteers in the preschool and now in the first grade who are going to continue to pour Jesus in their lives even more. And that's just pretty stinking incredible. And then we got this skinny David Higgs here. And I assume you noticed that dad was gone. And uh, dad is on vacation um, with Victoria and with Connie over in Branson. And little Dave stayed behind to lead us in worship and did just an incredible job. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to tell you that happened because, again, when we met little Dave in 2006, I think it was, he was about this tall. And my favorite memory of little David Higgs was, is, you know, he was a showboater. And uh, he was sitting there. We were sitting in the foyer, in the lower foyer over here, if you remember that, before this was built. And we had that intensely ugly mauve carpet. Does anyone remember the intensely ugly mauve carpet? Oh, come on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was so 80s. It was ridiculous. Okay. And little David goes, you know, we're sitting there committee interviewing, you know, dad. And, and little Dave looks up and goes, or looks down and goes, this is the most beautiful carpet I've ever seen. <laughs> I went, brown noser, brown noser, brown noser. It's just incredible, incredible the legacy that, that we see. And it just affirms in me that what I want to share with you today is happening, and my only prayer would be is that perhaps it happens just a little more. It just happens a little more. Today's sermon is on altar, tribal altar, that that spiritual aspect, that 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 thing that happens in in the home about Jesus. You know, and I heard it at the conference. I just came back from Moody. You know, they they said it, and we've heard it. I've said it. The greatest sermons, the greatest impact. For God, it's not going to happen even as well as it happens here at, at Dorisville in Sunday school. And perhaps in a sermon that a speaker would speak 
out now. The greatest sermon, the greatest impact is not going to be happening then. It's going to be happening as you walk hand in hand, day by day, with your children in this thing that we call life. Which includes, of course, this thing that we call the home. You know, uh, President uh, Hubert Bush, George Hubert Bush, uh, the, the first President Bush, was asked this question. He said, um, so what is your greatest accomplishment? What is your greatest accomplishment? And, and you know, he could have said how that he served his country in World War II as a torpedo uh, bomber pilot. He, he could have said that and been really accurate. He, he could have talked about how he served as vice president under Ronald Reagan. Uh, he could talk about that eight years that he did. And then, or he could talk about his own presidency, the things that he accomplished with all of that. But with all the things he could have said, here's what he said. He said, my greatest accomplishment, I believe that would be that my children still want to come and see me. That my children still want to come and see me. In other words, he had been such a role model in their lives that even in their older years, in his extreme older years, that they still wanted to be around dad. We probably don't grasp and understand the significance of moms and dads and grandmothers and grandfathers in people's lives. I wrote something on the uh, sermon sheet on the bottom page, and I just kind of want to tell that story a little bit. You know, I was thinking, I know this sounds weird, and I, it's not... It's just what it is. And, and I probably if I wrote, if I thought about it and thought about it, I'd come up with more. But I really have about four, four memories of my dad. And, and I know there's a lot more than that. It's just the, I, that's what I remember. Um, I remember when I was about 10 or 11 years old, my dad took me fishing. Now, we went fishing a lot. You know, we lived in Jacksonville, Florida on the coast. And we would go out to the beach and f- camp all night and fish and catch whiting. And, and it, was, it was a great time. We did that. But one time in particular, when I was about eight or nine years old, that I remember that after work, after working all day, my dad took me fishing. He took me to Cedar Creek, which is a small creek that runs through Jacksonville. And I remember, here's what I remember. I mean, I, we're sitting there fishing, and, and I remember him going, hey, son, where's your, where's your cork? Where's your cork? And, of course, you know how eight-year-old dysfunctional kids are anyway. You know, I wasn't paying attention, and the, the cork was under the water, and I caught a brim. Well, we call brim down south. You know, and that's that's my one sports memory. Well, no, that's not true. The other, well, the other two, the second memory is this: we're out squirrel hunting with Dad. You know, and I wasn't old enough to carry. I was probably about twelve at this time, and I realized, you know, twelve-year-olds today may carry shotguns. My dad didn't trust me with a shotgun, and there's a good reason why my father didn't trust me with a shotgun. He let me carry a BB gun. So we're walking through. I can see this like it was yesterday, and my dad had on his heavy. What would be like a Carhartt jacket today, you know, red heavy canvas, and we're walking through the woods. And just about that time, I kind of accidentally pulled the trigger on the BB gun. Yeah, hits dad right in the back. Yeah, but he had his heavy, hey, he had his heavy coat on. Everything's okay. Everything's okay. But I'll never forget, he turns over the shoulder and goes, you know, gives me that. Hello, look, you know. But anyway, that's my memory. But, but the other two memories are the ones that's on the sermon sheet, and they're just so special. You know, my dad, as I look back, my dad wasn't the kind of guy that I remember regularly attending church. Um, we, were, we were in church a lot more than we were out of church. There were a few spells where we didn't attend. But bottom line, we, we went to church a whole lot. And um, mom would go, but I don't remember dad going very much. And yet, in spite of that, 
two of the most precious memories I have are from those spiritual times in dad's life. You know, when I was probably again, probably about the time I shot him with a BB gun. Man, you know, I wrote on the sermon sheet, I'm not sure what caused my dad to do this spiritual thing. Maybe it's the fact that I shot him. I don't know. I don't know. But, but anyway, so when I was about 8 or 9 or 10 years old, somewhere in there, I remember us having family altar. I mean the old-fashioned family altar. I can see it around. We had a living room. You know, we only had two bedrooms for all these kids. And, but we were around the living room. And I can see it in my mind's eye. I mean, it's there, you know, that my dad was over in this corner. And he had an old recliner. And he was on his, hand, you know, his knees with his hands like this. And his, I can even see his legs crossed. And he's sitting there, and he's leading us in prayer. And, of course, I'm bored out of my brain because that's what kids do in family altar too often. I'm bored out of my brain, so I'm looking at what everybody else is doing. But that image of my father on his knees praying left this wonderful imprint on my life. Even though he wasn't a regular. I know he's a Christian, by the way. You're saying, Dwayne, was he a Christian? Yeah, no doubt in my mind. No doubt in my mind. No doubt in my mind. He was a believer. But that image is just burned in my brain. And then, and then the last memory is when I was like, you know, um, probably 16. You know, Dad was, I was smarter than Dad and smarter than Mom. Typical 16-year-old in the late 70s, early, or late, early 60s, late 70s, early 70s. And I walked in one night after a date. It was probably 11 o'clock. And uh, there was my dad. And uh, he was in his shorts with no shirt on. I, I remember this stuff. And there he was at the kitchen table. Elbows on the table. Hands crossed. And my dad was praying. The man who I assume probably didn't have a whole lot going on with God was praying. And I guess I ended with he died just a few years later, you know, when I was just 18 years old. I guess I left knowing that maybe my God, my dad had more going on with God than I thought. And incredibly, I got thinking, you know, we were talking about, you know, family stuff. And Judy's mom and dad were like arch enemies the last 10 years of their marriage, maybe more than that. I mean, they literally like, did they hate each other, you think? Pretty close. Of course, he was a deacon and she went to church, but they still hated each other. Yeah, it's kind of weird. We're just kind of weird. We, Georgia stuff is weird sometimes. And I, I, we're talking about the fact that even though in that situation, that horrible marriage... All his brother, all her brothers and sisters have never got divorced. And there's seven of them living. Were seven. And they all, you know, and in my family, where mom and dad fought about money every once in a while, but you know, it was, it was peaceable normally, you know. But in my family, we're the national average, 50% in divorce. But the reason I told you the story is this. Everyone. Of this family, when it didn't seem like Dad had it all together, it, it didn't turn church regular, but there were some memories there. In my family, every one of my brothers and sisters, and that would be me plus seven, remained active in church, and you would call a Christian. How about that? See, even when we mess up and we don't think we do it right, it, it, it works. It works out. This God thing works out. God doesn't call us to be the perfect mom or dad. It works out when we, at moments even, every investment we make, every right decision we make is a good decision. And the two fingerprints that I've got in my life involve my dad doing something very spiritual and leading his family in family altar or praying at the table.
I told you before that, that I, I uh, wasn't the best dad in the world. I was a great pastor. You need your toenails trimmed. I was there. I was there. You know, you, you're having you know, your hair cut. I would be there and pray for the, for the beauty person to do the right job. I was a great pastor, but often I wasn't there for my kids. No, it wasn't. That was horrible. Don't, under, don't read that into it. I'm just telling you, I wasn't there like I should have been for my own family. Fortunately, God gave me a wife and Judy that really, really stepped up to the plate. One of the things that I have now that is very precious to me that lets me know I didn't totally mess up, kind of like my dad, we were going through a box of stuff about three years ago, and we found this note from Jennifer, the middle daughter. And I'm, at this time, she probably still was the youngest one before Sarah came and spoiled everything and became the baby of the family, displacing Jennifer, who then became the middle child, and, well, she still resents it today. <laughs> anyway, she, she wrote me this note, and apparently... I was going to preach a revival somewhere. Now, when I first read this, it made me sad. But then I realized it was a goodbye note that she was writing to her dad who was going to preach a revival. And let me read it to you because I just think it's very, very special. And it shows that even though I sometimes put church before my family, that you know what? God, again, once again, the right decisions paid off. Here's what it says. Dear Dad, I love you. Isn't that nice? I am thankful... That God gave you to me for my father. Will you come and pray with me tonight at bedtime? Please tell me why you love me. I know this is, this is heart-wrenching. I'm glad I have you as my dad. I can see Jennifer writing this. Turn over for the rest of the letter. <laughs> <laughs> Dad, do you love me? I love you and Mommy the second best. Now, she's not saying, let me just pause here. She's not saying she loves Judy second best over me. You'll, you'll get the jest in just a minute. I love you uh, and Mommy the second best. You're the greatest. I hope we have a good revival. Be sure and notice Ron and Josh's letter, I have no idea, uh, with the key. One more thing. The reason is why you're not the first person I love is because I love Jesus and God the best. Goodbye, Jenny. <laughs> Even when you think you don't do a good job, God sends little reminders that you know what? Every good decision is a good decision. Every time and every way we can pour into our family's life, our children's lives, our wife's life, every time we can do that, it's a good, good thing. So what I want to do today and the rest of the time that we've got together is I would like to share with you from Deuteronomy chapter 6. From Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, there's a couple of things that you need to know. You might be tempted today... To, to raise your hand and go, preach, dude, okay? I like the Old Testament, but really, does it apply to my life? 
I, I, like, I like the Old Testament. I know it's even, you know, I even know it's God's Word, but is there anything I can really grab and take home for myself today in my modern life? You know, because this thing was written like a long time before Jesus. Is there anything that, that there, yes, there is. See, here's the incredible thing. Of course, a lot of the Old Testament, a chunk of the Old Testament is about the nation of Israel. Okay, and they start out as really just a few people and they multiplied and they end up being a nation, if you will, a group of people, really a super big family in the nation of in the land of Egypt. And they were slaves. And then God sends a deliverer and takes them out of Egypt. They make some really not wise choices and they end up in the wilderness for 40 years before finally God gets them to the Jordan River. And we talked about that last week and they're about to go into the promised land. And here's how that all applies to us. You know, if you imagine Egypt being the, the, the land of bondage and slavery that it was, if you'll keep in mind that for us, for believers today, the land of Egypt is just about as far away as we can get from God. And just like the nation of Israel was in bondage, we are born in bondage to sin. We are born slaves to sin. We are born separated from the God who loves us so much. And just like the nation of Israel needed a deliverer, so God sent a deliverer in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. So here we are as our natural born state. We're all separated from God as far as we can get from God. That's where we are. And the only thing we can do is believe what Jesus did. And so the Bible says that just like Moses came and delivered the nation of Israel, so Jesus came and offers to deliver every person from sin. It makes it possible for us to be as far away from God to be as close to God as possible. And the great part is it's not about performance and not about us ability to be good, but it's us believing what God said about us being sinners, about Jesus being his son and dying for us, and God, what he said about being willing to forgive us. So just like God delivered the nation of Israel out of Egypt, so God wants to deliver us from the slavery and bondage of sin and set us free. And a lot of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, you know I always say, one of the things I like to say now is God created Easter and uh, Easter just so we can be free. It's just an incredible story. But like I told you, in between... Egypt, after they left Egypt, you know, and before they got to the promised land, the nation of Israel ended up in the wilderness. In the wilderness. And, and the wilderness is kind of somewhere over here. And the wilderness is a land of disobedience. I mean, it should have been like a couple of months' journey, maybe, you know, a couple of months' journey, and they could have marched into the promised land, claimed the promise, yay, everything's good, everything's great. But they chose not to believe God. And so they ended 40 years wandering around in the wilderness. It's a land of disobedience. What some would like to say is partial, partial obedience. You know, partial obedience is still disobedience. It was. It was a hard time. It was a land of, of death. It was a land of death because God had said every person who, who, you know, that said, no, I won't trust you, God, had to die in the wilderness. And this is where so many of us live. We're not in Egypt anymore. We're not back there, but, but we're kind of like living out God's second best for us. Oh, we're saved and we're going to heaven. We got that part down, but we're not enjoying You say, Dwayne, you know, this Christian thing is not exactly what I thought it would be. And probably the reason why is we're living in the wilderness and not where God wants us to be, which is the promised land. 
So, so we go through life and we have doubts, we have disbeliefs, things are harder than they should be. Our kids, they walk away sometimes and things just don't go well. And then we think about this. You know, eventually the nation of Israel, as a nation, got it to the promised land. They got where they, God warned them all along. A, a, a land now, the, the promised land is not heaven. You know, that, that song goes, I am bound for the promised land. If you're over 50, you got that song. You know, it wasn't that at all. For the Christian, for, for the nation of Israel, it was, a, it was a land where God was going to fight their battles for them. And that's exactly what it is for us. The promised land is in heaven. We've still got battles here. Death is still a part of our lives. Failure is part of our lives. But the difference is we have God who fights these battles for us. God fights our battles for us. God helps us in this world. And this is where God wants us. And so the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 6 is about finally, they've left Egypt a long time ago. They finally have done their gig in the wilderness And now they're finally ready to go into the promised land. And I'm telling you, listen, this is where God wants you. Anything other than the promised land, anything other than God's abundant life that Jesus talked about in John 10.10, you shall have life, I come that you may have life and have it more abundantly, is second best. And so God says, I want you to come in and experience this. And amazingly, way back in Deuteronomy, he gives us the... The core, the the keystone, if you will, of the teaching of life in the promised land. And that's what I want to share. And I really, once again, want to speak mainly, not all, but I want to speak mainly to those younger parents. Because I'm telling you guys, you've got your work cut out for you in this crazy culture we've got. So the question becomes this. What's my best shot, Dwayne? What's my best shot of helping my children have Jesus Christ instilled in genuine faith in their life. You know, James Dobson said, the greatest thing a parent can do for their children is to instill genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Better than, bigger than college, because this life is going to run 70 years, 80 years, 90 years, and then we die. Eternity is a lot longer than life. And if we can instill Christ in genuine faith in our, our kids' lives, that's the biggest and best thing we can do. And the biggest and best thing we can do to make sure that happens is to live it ourselves. To live it ourselves. So let's go ahead and jump in. Again, that was a, that was a big point of the message. Don't think, oh, no, wow, with that introduction, we're going to be here until like late. Well, you might be, but not because of that. All right, here we go. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. This is the command, he says. Moses has given this to the nation of Israel. They're on the preface of going into the, the promised land, the abundant life, if you will. All right? They're there. He says, this is command. Now, notice that's singular. This is kind of like the Constitution. You know, the Constitution is one document with many amendments. He says, what I'm about to give you is the umbrella of this God thing. Uh, This is the umbrella, not only for the nation of Israel, but us as we live our lives here today. In the 20th century, this is the umbrella. What I'm about to give you is the umbrella that you are to live under. So this is the command, the statutes and ordinances that the Lord your God has instructed me to teach you. Here it is. So that you may follow them in the land you're about to enter and possess. Again, Israel for Israel, it was the promised land. For us, it's the abundant life. It's the life that Jesus Christ talked about in John 10, 10. And he says that, that you may follow them as you enter the land. As you may follow them 
as you enter the land. See, I really believe this. Jamie Grace sings a song that's entitled, Do Life Big. Do Life Big. God wants us to do life big. This choir sings a song. We weren't called to survive. We were called to thrive. We were called to thrive. So, so Moses says, speaking to the nation of Israel, he says, listen, you're about to enter this promised land, and I'm going to give you something that's going to help you thrive in this new land. And moms and dads, God's saying today, I'm going to give you something that will help you thrive as a parent. You're going to personally thrive. And as you personally thrive, that's going to slosh over onto your children. It's going to slosh over to those in your family and in your world. Okay? So you may live abundantly in this new land. Look at verse 2. Do this so that you may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life. By keeping all his commands and statutes, I am giving you. Do this so you can, one, respect God. Or, hey, hey, how about this? So you can depend on God. Now, again, I've been advertising my age a lot. No longer ashamed of it. 62 years, 41 years as as a Christian. Okay? I'm telling you this. The biggest lesson I can give you today as a guy that's further down the road than he used to be is the more we can depend on God, the better off we're going to be. The more we think we can do it, the worse off we're going to be. Because if we succeed for a while, we will fall later. Jesus never fails. God never fails. His word is true, and he truly is God. Okay? So he says, I'm going to do this so you can depend on me by by keeping all his statutes and commands. Again, this book is not bondage. I know, I know, I know. Your college professor will tell you that. He'll tell you a bunch of fairy tales. Some, your friend, your best friend, you're going out in the bass boat fishing one day, and he goes, you know what I don't like about God? It's nothing but bondage. I mean, he, you know, he puts all this guilt on you. No, no, no. See, God gives us his word because his word knows the best way to live. I mean, as we follow the word of God. Now listen, men mess with it. And that's where your bondage comes from. Men, men mess with the Word of God, and that adds bondage. But the Word of God in its pure form, if we'll just leave it alone, there is like freedom. There's like freedom in it. I mean, if we follow the Word of God, it changes our marriage. It changes our relationship between husband and wife. It changes our, our relationship with our children. It changes our relationship with friends. It really is a game changer. So he says, you know, if you'll depend on these, if you'll depend on me and depend on these during this time, it will impact. Watch, look what it says. Giving you, your son, and your grandson, and so that you may have a long life. God says this. It will impact you personally. It will impact the first generation. And it's going to impact the second generation. You, your son, and your grandson. That's why this is so big. See, it's not enough that you succeed. It's not enough that you succeed. You've got to have, and I'm not talking about physical. You understand that. I'm a preacher. We're in church. So you know I'm talking about spiritual success. It's not enough. Dad, 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 it's not enough that you succeed. You've got to pass it on. You've got to pass it on to your son. And guess what's going to happen with that son? When, when that success, spiritual success, is passed on to your son, when that dependence is passed on to your son, when he gets old enough to have kids, the chances are he's going to pass it on to his son, regardless of culture. Because what I'm talking about is bigger and stronger than culture. So, so he's saying that it's a generational thing. 
that we need to pass it on to our children and to our grandchildren. And then your children pass it on to their children and their children pass it on to their children. And if we truly believe that this is not bondage and this is the best life, this is doing life big, don't you want that? Don't you want your kids? You know, how many times have you said this? I want my kids to have more than me. That is very admirable. That's awesome. But shouldn't it be true spiritually also? Don't you want your children to have more of Jesus, not less of Jesus? Don't, don't, your, don't you want your children to have more spiritual success? And see, the great part is we get to look back at our failures like I do, look back and say, okay, now, son, don't do that. Don't do that. See, because there's no sense you learn it the hard way. Learn from dad. You know, I did this, and boy, wasn't a good idea. Pass it on. Pass it on. Pass it on. So the Bible says in Psalm 119, I've got to shift gears just a little bit, but, but it ties in that generational thing. In Psalm 119.9, David asks a question. How can a young man keep his way pure? How can a young man keep his way pure? Now, you automatically got to think something this. You got to think bigger than obey, obey, obey. How can a person keep their way pure in a society that has marginalized God? And it's more, listen, listen, listen. It's more than rules. I know, I know, my generation, you know, because God said so and that's enough. But it's more than that. I'm telling you guys, when we follow this book, we do life big. I mean, you're, you're here until God calls you home. You might as well do it good. You know, I think the old beer commercial said, go for the gusto. Hey, Budweiser, I've got something better than going for the gusto. How about going with the Word of God? Live life and live it fully and completely. I promise you, the stuff in a beer can can't give you what the Word of God can. The beer will help you forget your, your messed up life. The Word of woohoo! The Word of God fixes your messed up life. And that's a whole better deal. It's a whole bit. And again, that's just not rhetoric you expect to hear from a preacher. Listen, it is true. It is true. So how can, a, how can a young man keep his way pure? How can he experience the best life now, not to mention what happens later? Well, by keeping your word. Why? Because the Bible is God's roadmap for life. It will help you to avoid the tragedies of life. There's some guys here who can stand and say, I messed up. I was unfaithful to my wife, um, had, a, had a huge alcohol addiction, left scars all over the people I love. And they'll tell you, when I discovered the truth of God's Word and the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit in my life, it changed things. It changed things. So, so, so by keeping God's Word, by listening and reading God's Word, he goes in verse 10, I have sought you with all my heart. Don't let me wander from these commands. I have treasured your word. And here, Nanette, here's your scripture. I have treasured your words in my heart that I might not sin against you. I mean, it's wonderful that when we do mess up, you know, with the atomic bomb sin, whatever that might be in your life, for a lot of people it's a sexual sin. It's great that God forgives that and perhaps your wife will forgive that. But wouldn't it be better to avoid it in the first place? Yeah. Yeah. And that's what the word of God does. So back in Deuteronomy, verse number 3, he jumps in again. He says, now listen, Israel, and be careful to follow them. Talking about the word of God. So that you may prosper 
and multiply greatly. You know, Abraham Lincoln said this, in the end, it's not the years in your life, it's the life in your years. How good is that? And again, that is found, I believe, in, in following the Word of God, in following the Word of God. So you may prosper and multiply greatly because Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. And starting in verse 4, we had the Shema. Now you can leave here. I'm going to mess myself up. I love messing myself up. It's spelled S-H-E-M-A, which is Shema. Okay, now I'm going to say that sometime. Just be ready. But it's pronounced Shema. Say Shema. Shema. The word Shema is a Hebrew word, and it means to hear. And Jewish people today, Jesus then, Jewish people today, recite, repeat the Shema. And the Shema means to hear and to heed. To hear and to heed. Here's what it says. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. If you're going to pass on a spiritual success, hey dad, hey mom, if you're going to pass on that spiritual success, you have got to come to the conclusion that God is your one and only. God is your one and only. God doesn't do girlfriends. God doesn't have a girl on the side. God doesn't allow girls on the side. You know, she was telling me a story about a friend of hers in a different culture, here in America, but a different culture. And how that it was really strange that these folks were married, and I assume semi-quote happily married. But in that culture, he had a girlfriend. Mama knew it. The neighbors knew it. Everybody knew it. And every Sunday afternoon, you know what Dad did on Sunday afternoon? He went and saw his girlfriend. They'd go to church in the morning. Then he'd go see his girlfriend in the afternoon. It was part of that culture. God doesn't have that arrangement. When we trust Jesus Christ as Savior, we are saying, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And there's no girlfriends on the side. There's not the God of materialism. There's not God of, of prosperity. There's not the God of, of my own way, my own gig. Okay? God doesn't do that. God declares, and the way we live, the way we live, the way we live in this promised land is with final determination that there are not any other gods in my life. You know, in the time of, of uh, when Moses wrote this, and when Jesus' time, it hadn't changed. And guess what? It hasn't changed today. We have a plethora of gods around. We have a bouquet of gods to choose from, especially in America. And again, by the way, the latest, biggest god is what? Sexuality. Start and, stop and think what's driving the culture today. We are a hypersexual society. It's driving that. Actually, it's a fist in God's faith, sexuality, that's driving the culture today. So you've got to determine, as a Christ follower, you've got to determine, as a Christ follower, that there's one God, and His name is Jehovah Creator God. Amen? Amen. Okay? No other, listen, no girlfriends on the side. Say, no girlfriends on the side. If you're going to serve God, you're going to have to serve God. Okay? That's just the way it is. He, He won't fudge on this one. You won't fudge on this one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. That is, by the way, it's, it's kind of cool. Heart, see, in, in Hebrew culture, the, the, you know, I love you all. My heart is your intestines. So you would say to your wife, if you were of this culture, you would say, I love you with all my guts. Isn't that, isn't that romantic? 
Doesn't it stir you up? Okay? So in this culture, the heart was not the emotional seed. It was intellect and will. So, so what, what Moses is saying, what God is saying, that you've got to love the Lord your God with all your intellect and with your will. A conscious decision to say, God, you're mine. A conscious decision, even though your friends don't agree, even though culture doesn't agree, and it's going to disagree more and more and more. God, you are mine. He goes on and says this, with all your heart, with all your soul, that's the very essence of who you are. That's what makes Dwayne, Dwayne, Judy, Judy, um, um, Barbara, Barbara. It's who makes you what you are. The very essence of who you are, I choose to love God. And with all your strength, with all your abilities. You know, I think it's so incredible. I, I just can't get away from Matthew 22, you know, where Jesus asks, what's the greatest commandment? And you know what he recites, don't you? The Shema. Someone say Shema. Shema. Okay, don't forget that. Okay, you know Hebrew words. You're going to say really intelligent, okay? Shema, the intelligent word, okay? You shall, here's the way Jesus, it's almost set word for word. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. Okay? So here we are in the New Testament, learning the same thing that Moses taught the nation of Israel. The Shema. God's number one. Love God with everything that you are. But I love this. Now listen, I've got a very important point to make, so don't, don't tune out. Okay? I love the fact he says this. Jesus goes on. He didn't ask for two, but he gets this. The second... The second is like it to it. Love your neighbors yourself. Now, here's the deal. In the culture, you're bringing up your kids. And frankly, if you're a millennialist, your generation. And frankly, the 60s and 70s too. Let's just throw them in the pot. It's a self-centered culture. It's about us. You don't want to raise your children where it's about me. You know, they walk in on the job and say, I'm your new answer. Make me president. I don't have any experience, but hey, I know everything. You don't want to raise a child that is that self-centered. And it's happening all the time. How do you avoid that? You teach them to love God and to love others. Some of you today have already said, I'm not planning on doing the park thing. Some of you are saying, I'll bring my kids to the park. May I make a suggestion? Come to the park this afternoon. Go find Judy or somebody and say, my children and I want to serve. We're not here for the popcorn and the hot dogs. I want to teach my child how to serve others. And the people that's going to show up at the park, a lot of them will be marginalized by our society. What greater opportunity for you to show them Jesus and that what we're talking about today than to make a, make a God moment, to make a memory as they serve others less fortunate than themselves. Love the Lord your God and your neighbor and your neighbors yourself. Give me five, give me seven minutes. Verses 6 through 9. This is really the hard core of the whole deal. These words. These words that I am giving you today are to be in your heart. Are to be in your heart. Someone shared with me today, they said to me, I hear, but it don't stick. I hear, but it doesn't stick. Moses says these words, the Shema, 
The Lord is one. And then Jesus' addition to the second man, love God, love people, has got to become part of us. You know, Jesus said in, in John chapter 6, he said, you know, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't be part of me. And the folks go, freaky, I'm out of here, and a bunch left. And you probably would have, I would have too. Eat flesh, drink blood, huh? And I don't know all of what God had going on there, what Jesus had going on, but I do know this. He was saying that if we eat flesh and drink blood, or if we eat a hot dog and drink milk, it becomes part of us. I think Jesus was saying that he has to become ingrained in you. That's a good example. Um, Judy, when did we have those good pork chops? Was it Friday? Friday night? Two days ago, Judy made this incredible supper. We had barbecued pork chops, corn on the cob, baked potato, and bread. Hello, honey. That is good eating. Amen? Even though... Even though it's been two days ago, part of that is still with me. Are you getting with me? Part of that is still with me. And will be with me. Some of it went to empower my extreme physique. Some of it Gave me a little protection in case I fall. But it's still with me. Jesus says, when you take me, you've got to get me so that all of me stays with you. Whether it be the Word of God, the implementation through the Holy Spirit, whatever it is, that God's got to be a part of you that's not going to run away. Are you following me? Now get this. Parents, you don't know how huge this is. You have got to get these words in your heart. Not just come and hear a sermon and two days later you can't remember whatever God's word said to you. Not get up in the morning and have a devotion and you can't remember. You've got to get the word of God ingrained in you. And then it goes on. Repeat them to your children. Now, somehow Holman didn't do a good job with this. Teach them diligently. Teach diligently. In Hebrew, you know what that means? To sharpen and to hone. Some of you guys, they won't, they won't trust me with a knife. But some of y'all got a pocket knife, and you know when you get a little dull, what do you do? Shh, 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 shh. You bring the edge back. And Moses is saying, when this gets into your life, then you've got to pour it into their, li- their life as a sharpener of a knife. As... As a sharpener cuts an edge on a knife, so you need to allow the Word of God to sharpen the edge of your children, to make them sharp. You need to repeat it to their children. You've got to talk about them when you sit in your house, in a formal setting. As you're, as you're out fishing in the fast boat and your son's there with you, bring God up. Bring God up. When you're riding back from flip-flops, and you know, with your daughter, Mom, bring God up. When you're sitting there in the stands and the game's over and you're riding back home, bring God up. Make it everywhere you go. Maybe a formal setting time. That might be the family altar time. Maybe. Okay? Maybe it's just riding down the road, talking the road, sitting in the bass boat as you go along the road. When you lie down, late at night. Again, I go back to Jennifer. 
Will you come and pray with me when? Will you come and pray with me? Tonight. 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 I'm so proud. I know Judy, and, and I'm, I did some, but Judy prayed with our kids. And I know that the one that's sitting over here prays with her kids every night. Prays with her kids every night. When you lie down. When you get up in the morning, even in that crazy time before you're going to work and the day's starting, crazy. Just make sure that it has a God environment around it. goes on and said this. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Everywhere. 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 Just have a God environment. It's not hard. If you can, if you can do the family altar thing, like, you know, get everybody together. I've heard all kinds of ways of doing it. If you can do that, that's like, it's so incredible. But don't think you're a failure if you don't. But just make sure this, that you're so saturated with God that it sloshes on your kids. That you're so saturated with God that it sloshes on your kids. However that works out in your life. Again, whether it's in a bass boat or driving down the highway. Whatever it is, whatever it is, let God slosh over onto your kids. This is so important. I've heard it said time and again that we're one generation away from extinction. That used to be a cute saying that preachers would say, kind of get y'all's attention. Now, y'all need to know that the Bible says, that we're just one, and the Bible does say, that we're one generation away from extinction. It's a one generational thing. You know, you got to know that. Old Testament. It's more true than ever. And what? It has not been easy to be a teenager in a long time. But I will look at our millennials now. Roth, I'm looking right at you. And it was hard back in the 2000 when you were a senior. Is that about right? Were you a senior in 2000? Yeah. It was hard then. But it's going to be harder for your kids. If you think being a teenager was hard in 2000, 2005, it's harder now. And if there's ever a time, if there's ever a time, if there's ever a time, you've got a Shema. It's now. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love him with all your heart, soul. Jesus said, mind and strength. Love him that way. Dwayne, is that a guarantee? Well, you know, they love to throw out Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way they, when they should go, and when they're old, they won't depart from it. That's not a promise, it's a principle. Your job as a parent, your job as a parent, to slosh as much God on your kids as you can. And they have a free will. They have a free will. But you're to make it as easy as possible for them to believe in Jesus. That's what you're to do. And the biggest and best way is for it to be in you, be in you. You believe in it, and you live in it. Hama, you believe in it, you live in it. Slosh it, saturate God on their lives, and pray like crazy. Let's pray. God, thank you for this privilege of sharing today. Thanks for these folks' patience today as we shared. And God, I just can't stop praying for our younger, younger parents. We probably should have been praying years ago. But Father, you just laid on our hearts to pray more than ever. Father, these are difficult cultural times. And I want to ask God that you would speak to their hearts. For every father, young father, for every young mother, for 
we grandfathers and grandmothers. Father, those that will have perhaps in the family the biggest opportunities to speak into their lives. Father, may we truly and totally depend on you, not ourselves. Totally depend on you. Father, thanks for the cross. And if there's someone here that's still over in Egypt, and they heard a little bit about coming out of Egypt and into your relationship with you, thank you for that, God. Father, as Brother Brent stands down front today, would you speak to their hearts? Lord, have your way. Holy Spirit, I know this is all about you. It's not about me. God, I just pray to the Holy Spirit that he'll draw people into relationship with you, but also moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas to come and to be so serious of how we slosh you onto our kids. And Jesus, I pray this in your name. Amen.